For a number of reasons, I felt that it's important that um, I help all of us, including myself, to understand why we do the things that we do as, um, as Anglican worshipers. Many of us, if not most of us uh, today, um, we're not cradle Anglicans. We don't come from Anglican backgrounds, and we go through the, the ritual of the Anglican service, and many of us do it, but we don't really understand why we do it. Um, and uh, some of us may have um, misconceptions about why we do the things that we do. And so what I'm going to do today in part is what's called an instructed liturgy. Um, this isn't the, the main of our service today. I'll be doing it right up until the sermon, and then I'm going to preach. And then two weeks from now, when we do the Lord's Supper again, uh, I'm going to do an instructed liturgy again to look through why we do the things that we do with respect to the Lord's Supper. Um, and uh, so I, I, I want to encourage you to, to, um, to think through with me today um, as we go through the liturgy, and we're going to be doing it in parcels. I'll be doing some explanation, and then we're going to be saying these things together, uh, the liturgy. Um, if you need to take notes, that's good and right. Um, you don't have to. I do hope in days to come that this can develop into something in the form of a booklet that we can read more in depth and that can be expanded more in depth. And so what I'm going to do now, I'm going to pray with you and ask you to pray with me that the Lord who alone gives understanding, he alone gives understanding, would help us to understand some of the scriptural reasons as to why we worship here at Christ Church in the way that we do. And uh, then we're going to talk about the call to worship. We're going to talk about uh, our prayer for purity. And then we're going to walk through these things um, together. So let's just bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for the church of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the privilege of gathering as your people and uh, the privilege of worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And Father, I ask now that you would be present by your Holy Spirit to lead us in the way of understanding and to lead us in the way of wisdom. Help us, Lord, to hear. Help us, O oh Lord, to hear your word especially. And for all of us today, may we submit to its authority and be a people who are ruled by the word alone. We ask for Christ's sake today, we pray it. Amen. Well, if you look at your, again, order of service today, you'll see there a call to worship, and then our opening hymn and our prayer for purity. And the call to worship is there for us um, to help us to enter rightly into the presence of God, knowing that we're not always naturally and spontaneously, spontaneously going to do so. We need something to quiet our busy hearts and our busy minds before the living God. And we need as Christians, and this is something that may be foreign to some of us, we actually need to worship God correctly. There's a right way to worship God, and there are many wrong ways to worship God. And Scripture spells this out for us in many places, but I want to just think with you uh, together about Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 to 29, and three things that Hebrews 12 says about worship. In Hebrews 12, 28 to 29, when he's talking about the corporate worship of God's people, he says it's to be marked with three things. First of all, worship 
is to be marked with gratitude for what God has done. Worship is to be marked with gratitude uh, for what God has done. Secondly, we read there in Hebrews that we must offer to God what kind of worship? Acceptable worship. He says not just any human response will do. Not just any human way will do. It has to be acceptable worship before the Lord. Now, I wasn't brought up in this church. Many of you may not know this, that I wasn't raised in the Anglican tradition. I was 21 years old, like some of you here today, I was 21 years old as a university student, and I was asked by a professor at UBC to help out with a prayer book conference at 21. I was asked actually to help out with the children, and I taught them the Pilgrim's Progress of all things, while the adults were part of this prayer book conference. But I did go to the closing uh, Eucharist celebration, the, the last time they met to gather uh, for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And as a young 21-year-old, never having been in an Anglican service, never having tasted Anglican worship, it made such a deep impression on me, the overwhelming sense of the dignity of God. As I watched people kneel around the communion rail and begin to weep at the thought of the mercy of God towards poor sinners, I experienced a sense of dignity and awesomeness that I had never tasted before at 21. Well, when I was 25 years old, I went to a non-denominational seminary in Toronto, and it just so happened that the systematic theology professor who was there for me that year was a one-year visiting professor from Australia who was a Reformed Anglican. And this man who was in his mid-80s, he taught the Word of God to me and the grace of God to me in a way that impressed me in a similar way of the awesomeness of God. And then when I went to do my doctorate uh, not too many years later at the U of T, I just happened to enter into an Anglican college, just as my wife Heather uh, was hired as a rector's assistant at a large Anglican church in Toronto. So from 21, I've been led by the Lord into this Anglican uh, tradition, and I've grown more and more and more aware that this tradition keeps in view the idea of acceptable worship. It isn't the only tradition. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to hear that from me, that the Anglican tradition is the only way. But it's a very good tradition, uh, and one that, one that I believe corresponds to what Hebrews 12 is talking about. Now, apart from gratitude, Hebrews tells us that the worship of God that he deems acceptable is worship that is characterized by what? By reverence and by awe. Why? Because he says our God is a consuming fire. And so according to Hebrews 12, worship, uh, the, 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 what the call to worship does and what the call to worship is at the beginning of our service, to put it in parental terms, the call to worship drives the sillies out. The call to worship is meant to drive the nonsense out and to bring us before a God who is a consuming fire, before whom we can express gratitude, before whom we can express reverence, before whom 
we can express awe. Just like Habakkuk uh, uh, chapter 2 says, the Lord is in his holy temple. And what's the appropriate response of his worshipers? Let the whole earth keep silence before him. Reverence and awe. And so when we gather as God's people, we say a call to worship to bring us to these three places of gratitude for all that he's done. He's our savior. He's delivered us from sin. He's met all of our needs in Christ. And he is awesome. And he demands reverence. And he demands awe before him. Now, secondly, you'll see in your order of service, we have a prayer for purity. Now, I I can't go through all of this prayer, but I do think I can anticipate some of your questions. Why do we say the same things in this church? (laughs) Again and again and again and again. Where's the prophet in the liturgy by saying a prayer that I've said so many times before? Well, the first thing I want to say to you today in terms of instruction about the liturgy is that the liturgy helps this service not to be a spectator sport. The liturgy helps this service not to become a thing about spectating. That is, we sit our bums down and the clergy does it for us. Now, there's a place for the clergy by God. There's a place for the clergy to do word and sacrament. But it is not just the clergy. Liturgy means the work of the people. You have a part to play. You say things, you stand, you kneel, you come forward, you pray. And I hope sometimes you will shout these prayers uh, when I say the Lord be with you and also with you. It's a good thing. So the liturgy keeps this service from becoming about spectating. But secondly, I want to say to you today that I find it very interesting that some people who are bothered by saying the same prayers again and again and again are not bothered in the same way by singing the same worship songs again and again and again, or from reading the same scripture verses again and again and again. People will seldom complain that their singing isn't spiritual because it's written for them on the screen. Otherwise, we'd just be singing spontaneous songs. Let's just come and sing our spontaneous songs together. But you see, singing is what? Singing, generally, is prayer. Singing, generally, is prayer. It is a pre-written prayer that you sing to the Lord. Sometimes it's creedal. Sometimes these guys they, and girls, they, they sing for us creedal songs, which is affirmation of faith. But generally, a song is a pre-written prayer, a prayer that someone else wrote to God for you to pray. Now, brothers and sisters, liturgy is just the same principle. We pray things that others have written again and again to God. Why? Because the prayers are true, just like the hymns are true. 
just like the songs are true. And as we sing songs and mean them from our own hearts, so we pray the liturgy every time afresh and anew to God from our own hearts and anew to God. It is the same thing and the same principle. We all enjoy the singing. It expands our experience to God. And so we can all enjoy the liturgy, just like this call to purity. It's true and it's right. And every time I pray that, just like every time I sing, you know, great is thy faithfulness, or every time I sing holy, 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 every time is a new moment. Every time for me to say, oh, Lord, this is to you from my heart today. So, brothers, there's our first little instruction there. Let's stand together. And I want us now to, to uh, together say our call to worship. And then we're going to open with our opening hymn and pray together the prayer for purity. Brothers and sisters, today give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Brothers and sisters, today give thanks to the God of gods. Brothers and sisters, today give thanks to the Lord of lords. Amen. And let's open with our opening hymn today, Holy, Holy, Holy. Well, now we come to something that's called the summary of the law. And uh, this is something that for many people may be difficult to uh, understand. Why do Christians in the New Testament and Christians of the New Testament, why do they rehearse the law? Why do they state it at all? We are not justified, my brothers and sisters, by the law of Moses. We are not justified by it. We are not saved in the fullest sense of the meaning of the word from our being called and chosen from our being justified and sanctified to our being glorified, we are not saved by a law of works. That is, do this and live. <laughs> That's the law of works. Do this and live. We are not saved by that. We are no longer in any way under the curse of the law. We are no longer in any way under the condemnation and the guilt of the law. Rather, as New Testament believers, we are under the law of faith. Romans 3.27, the law of faith. God made a law. God made a decree, and he said this, if anyone believes in my son... If anyone believes what Jesus Christ has done in suffering in humanity's place, in receiving in himself all the pains and all the penalties of the law and dying the death to which the law had condemned you and had condemned me, justly had sentenced all of humanity to death. Jesus died that death. God says, if anyone looks to Christ and believes that Christ has done this very thing on a cross, then that person, the law of faith says, 
that believing person will receive the free gift of the righteousness of Christ. A perfect, complete, divine righteousness which is so holy and so perfect that the moral law of God is perfectly satisfied forever. The newly clothed sinner. That's the gospel, my friends. That's the law of faith. The law of of the moral law says do this. The law of faith says believe this and you will be saved. Whatever you've done, whatever you might do, you will be saved only by looking to Jesus. By the law of Moses, we are guilty sinners. By the gospel of Christ, we are glorious saints. And by continually looking to Jesus, Hebrews 12, 12, uh, 12, 2 and 2 Corinthians 3, 18, by continually fixing our eyes on this very Jesus, who is the author of our faith and who is the perfecter of our faith, by continually looking to his glory, the glory of Christ as the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the only mediator between God and man, the only bridge to God, the perfect high priest who continues ever to make intercession for us and the one who saves us to the uttermost. (laughs) By continually looking to him, we will make it home. (laughs) And that's the only way we're going to make it there, by looking to Jesus. Jesus alone is our wisdom. Jesus alone is our righteousness. He alone is our sanctification. He alone is our redemption. And we add nothing to that. It is just Jesus, the gospel says. The law of faith says to you and me today, the law that God decreed, if anyone believes on this Jesus, he will be saved. She will be saved. Well, then why do we recite the law of Moses at the beginning of our communion service? Why do we do that? Well, first of all, we do this because Jesus, our captain, our faithful high priest, he turns us to it. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees come to test Jesus. They come to put him to the test. They want to test Jesus' knowledge of the law. Now, you need to know something about the context here. Jesus had a battle with the Pharisees. Jesus had a beef with the Pharisees because the Pharisees did not cherish his father's law. Jesus says in the very next chapter, in Matthew 23, 28, that the Pharisees appear outwardly righteous to others. But on the inside, Jesus says, On the inside, they are full of hypocrisy, and the Pharisees are full of what? Lawlessness. They are without my Father's law. And he says to them, you Pharisees, you delight in the little things. You delight in tithing the mint and the cumin. You delight in all these little things, but you neglect the weighty matters of the law. You neglect the justice and the mercy and the faithfulness, you ought to have done these and not to have left the others undone. 
he says to them. Jesus has a beef with these people, and so they come to him and they test him, and they say, Lord, they say, Jesus, what does God require of us? What does God require of us in his moral law? What's most important in God's moral eyes? Jesus, Matthew 22. And Jesus says this to them. He says, I'll tell you what the most important thing is. And Jesus then, he takes them to the first commandment. He takes them to the great commandment. Jesus takes them directly to Deuteronomy 6.4, which was Moses' summary of the great law of God. And Jesus says, hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You shall have no other gods before me, Israel. The Lord first, Israel. God before anything else, Israel. Love God with all your hearts, with everything that you are. Love God first, Israel. Love God most, Israel. And then Jesus says this to them. He says, the second most important thing is this. It's very similar. He says, love your neighbor. Don't hurt your neighbor. Cherish your neighbor. This is Jesus' own summary of his Father's plan for his world, his desire for his people, that they would love God first and foremost, and then they would love each other even as they love themselves. And then he says this remarkable thing. Jesus says, on these two commandments found in Deuteronomy 6 and 5, on these two things, what? Depend all the law, all the prophets, everything that was ever written in the Old Testament depend upon these two things. C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, he writes this, he says, the duty of loving God And the duty of loving our neighbor is the supreme object of divine revelation. On this, as on a great peg, hang all the law and the prophets. And if you take that peg away, what do you have, he says? What do you have? Remove the peg and you've lost your knowledge of the scriptures. Being free, Spurgeon says, from legal condemnation. We now ever than ever before, we now ever seek to honor the Lord in the power of the new life and in the Holy Spirit who dwells in us by obeying these two commandments that the Lord points us to as the sum of God's plan for his people. Why do we rehearse the words from Deuteronomy? Church, why do we do it? Because Jesus... He quoted Deuteronomy, and Jesus said that this is the most important thing. All of Scripture hangs on this. And looking to Jesus, my brothers and sisters, looks, means looking to his teaching, as well as looking to his sacrifice. We rehearse the summary of the law together because we know, we know, And we are persuaded, according to Titus 2.14, that our great Savior, Jesus Christ, he gave himself on a cross to redeem us from what? To redeem us from all lawlessness. 
That is, he died not just to clothe us with an alien righteousness, but he died to make us by grace and to make us by his Holy Spirit a people who are zealous for good works. An obedient people. Few people have put this so well as the great 18th century preacher William Romaine. Romaine, the great revivalist, says this. He says, being saved by Christ, the Holy Spirit enlightens a believer's understanding to see what the law of the Lord is. And so he takes away the prejudices. He subdues the opposition which were in his heart naturally against it. The commandments cease to be grievous to the believer. The love of God being shed abroad in his heart constrains him to love God. And it constrains him to love the will of God, for God and his will are one. He that loves God cannot hate God's will. Love cannot beget hatred. And therefore, when the Holy Spirit gives that faith which works by love, he then reconciles the believer's will to God's will so that he can truly say, Oh, Lord, what love have I to thy law? And so, my brothers and sisters, we pray, Lord, have mercy upon us and write your laws in our hearts, we pray. Not that the law isn't already there. It is there by grace. It is there by the new covenant. But when we pray this, we're praying that God's commandments would go ever deeper. That God's commandments to us would become ever clearer to us, ever more readable to us, ever more understandable to us, because we know, my brothers and sisters, how apt we are to forget our duty to God and our duty to our neighbor. So brothers and sisters, I ask you with this in view that we listen together to the words of Jesus from his gospel. We listen to his summary of the law and then pray in response accordingly. We read, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and it's the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything hangs on those two things. So hearing now today the words of Jesus, we pray together. Lord, have mercy upon us and write your law in our hearts, we pray. And we're going to continue praying to the collect. I've put the collect today into the order of service. The collect is simply a gathering of our thoughts around the majesty of God. It's a way to, to focus our attention to God together. So let's pray this prayer for today. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given your servants grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity and in the power of your divine majesty to worship the unity of God. We ask you that this holy faith may always be our defense against every adversity, for you live and reign one God, world without end. Amen.
Well, I promise you, my brothers and sisters, that the, uh, the last um, description of the liturgy was the longest, and it will be shorter from here on in until we get to the sermon. I do want to say something about the psalm. We're about to read the psalm together, and we read the psalms each Sunday. Every Sunday we read the psalms. Well, we don't read the psalms. We pray the psalms. The psalms are God's gift to his church. They are the prayer book of the Bible. The psalms teach us to pray as humans. The psalms teach us to be honest to God about our hurts and our griefs, how we don't feel him present, how we feel he's abandoned us. The psalms teach us to pray, to, be, to acknowledge to God how people have hurt us. The psalms teach us that even when the waves and the billows have gone over us, and our soul is downcast within us, still we can hope in God. The Psalms teach us to pray in weakness, and the Psalms teach us to pray in power. They're God's gift to us as the manual of prayer, and remember that in Jesus' most urgent hour, and in his most urgent need, where does Jesus turn? But he prays the Psalms. Why have you forsaken me? Father, he says. And beyond this, my brothers and sisters, let me say to you, it is a command of the New Testament in Ephesians 5 with respect to how we should do worship. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We cannot get off the hook. The apostle has commanded us to pray the Psalms in our corporate worship together do it to each other, he says, with each other. The life of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul says, in the life of worship includes, by apostolic imperative, putting the Psalms in our mouths and offering them to God in the company of our brothers and sisters. Why do we read the Psalms? Because the Apostle Paul has commanded us to do it. It's good for us. It teaches us how to pray. And my brothers and sisters, every time we read the Psalms and we pray them together, God hears us. God answers the prayers that he has made for us. What a wonderful thing. And so let's today, I'm going to invite Heather up to pray with us through uh, Psalm 92. Let's pray the words of Scripture as God has given them to us.